Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Alan Safran, CEO and co-founder of Saga Education, joins us to discuss how to do high-impact tutoring right. Then, on the Research Minute, Adam reports on a new study investigating the impacts of computer science education on early career outcomes. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. We should stop failing at teaching foreign language and start failing at teaching computer science instead. Yes. <laughs> what does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome our special guest for this week, Alan Safran. Alan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah, Alan is the CEO and co-founder of Saga Education. We're going to talk about tutoring people, but first, let's welcome my co-host, David Griffith. David, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Yeah. All right, Alan, let's see. Did I get your last name right and the name of your organization right? All set. I love it. I love it. Now, Saga, uh, not Sega. No, Saga. 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 Ah, does it stand for something? Is there is that an initials? What what does that mean? Truth, justice, in the American way. Actually, it was an acronym of my initials backwards and my co-founders backwards because we couldn't find a nonprofit name that was available to us. So this my my daughter and my co-founder's wife said, "Well, have to try Saga." So that was your origin, but we've now downsized. It's no longer all caps. It's just capital S and AGA. Lovely, lovely. That reminds me of when we were launching the Pi Network, the Policy Innovators and Education Network, way back when. uh, And we were like, all right, that's a terrible name, but it's just a placeholder. We can't come up with a better one at this meeting. We'll deal with it later. And now, more than 15 years later, still the name. Yeah, things tend to stick. Things stick. Uh, You know what else sticks? Learning from tutoring. Boom. How about that for a segue? Thousands of years of evidence. Can't be denied. Let's talk about tutoring on Ed Reform Update. All right, Alan, you all have been getting some very nice press and in my opinion, well-deserved for uh, being one of the organizations out there that really knows how to do high quality, high dose tutoring at scale effectively. Uh, This is, of course, the big challenge on the plate of America's schools uh, as we try to dig ourselves out of learning loss. And as schools try to make good use of their ESSER money before the the clock is up on that. So let's just start with the basics from uh, tell us a little bit about what you guys are up to and, and what you've been learning about how to help districts do this well. Yeah, I actually want to tell you a little bit about the origin story first, if you don't mind. I like to answer questions that haven't been asked, but the origin story is interesting. So this this idea of high dose of tutoring began in 2004. So we're 20 years into it. Mike Goldstein had the idea to create high dose of tutoring as a part of a charter school. And I was the executive director who was in charge of helping to implement it. So I consider Mike and me the OGs of high dosage tutoring. Uh, and we call it high impact tutoring now because dosage is just an input and impact the outcome you want. So we've changed the phrasing, but HDT is what it used to be called. Now we call it HIT. And so 20 years of doing it, we learned a lot. Um, you know, there's, as, as a good friend of you say, there's 101% issues that you're going to face when you try to implement something new in schools. And tutoring is no no doubt, no exception that there's 101% things. Uh, so it came out of a, a charter in Boston. Then we moved into districts like Lawrence, Massachusetts under receivership. We moved to Stanford, Connecticut, took it to Chicago and have a nine randomized control trials since then, nine in 10 years, all at the student level. So these are like gold standard you know, we got it's like the Fort Knox of, of evidence here at Saga. We got nine randomized trials at the student level. 
But what we've learned is that you've got to build it as part of the day. You've got to have the right um, uh, dosage for kids, which we think is 60 hours minimum in a year to really move the needle. Some kids need more, some less. That's the average. You've got to look at the three major issues in schooling, time, people, and money. And if you're going to build it in a day, how do you solve the time problem? It differs at high school versus middle school versus elementary. Where do you find your people? Are you going to get people in person to do it or you want to do live online? Both are valid. Happy to talk about that in this in this podcast. And then money. You know, schools have always had the money. They've chosen to spend it 80% of it on teacher salaries, 20% on other things. And now they got extra money. So they've added tutoring. The question is, will they continue this after that extra money is done by using old sources like Title I, tremendously reliable federal single source of funding? That's enough to cover tutoring. It's about a thousand per pupil in normal years. It's enough to cover and provide high impact tutoring. Question is, they'll have to repurpose that from things they already spend it on. Yeah, and, and Alan, you know, I mean, the Title One point is really important because if if you look at the history, I mean, way back when, you know, this was the idea. The Title One was supposed to be the supplemental funding that was going to go for things like tutoring, right? And then we went through a period probably starting in the 80s into the 90s, 2000s, when we said, well, you know, we're pulling kids out to do this other stuff and it's not very good and they're missing a core academic instruction. So instead, let's use Title I for, you know, school-wide programs, school improvement, you know, more comprehensive sorts of things. So it's interesting how this goes in and out of fashion. It totally does. But it, it is the logical source. And a district that says, you know, K-12 doesn't need to spend it on every grade tutoring. As I've argued, the focus of tutoring should be on two grades out of the, of the, of the pre-K to, to 12, 14-year system. Should be on getting kids proficient in reading by the end of three and passing algebra one by the end of ninth grade. Those should be the two focus areas. And if schools and districts get 1,000 per pupil pre-K to 12, they only need to spend it at those grades and on the third of kids in each of those grades who are likely at risk of not being proficient in reading by the end of three and not passing algebra one. Those kids in this country are kids from poor families who are disproportionately black and brown. It would take 100,000 tutors in this country to serve those kids. We could do that. All right, let's talk about a little bit of of what you said earlier. Uh, First of all, time, and you said varies, elementary, middle, high school. So uh, elementary, I, I imagine, is is pretty flexible. But, you know, middle school, high school, you've got courses. So, yeah, how do you manage that? Two ways, Saga's way and what I now see districts doing. Both are valid. Saga's way is to build a period into the school schedule. Now, it could be taken from an elective in high school. It could be from what uh, districts double block periods of math. The second block could be for tuning. Uh, Broward County, Florida has what's called a personalization period. Logical that we personalize and provide tutoring in that period. So there's space in the high school day. In Lawrence in 2012, they actually cobbled together minutes, gave every period a haircut, cobbled together new periods throughout the day. So what was an old seven period, they became an eight period day, and you can build tutoring in throughout the day. The way districts are doing it in middle and high school, I just visited uh, recently Orange County, Florida, Ector County, Texas, Fairfax County, Virginia. They're building it into the classroom teacher's class. This is very innovative. And I think that's going to be the easiest way to do it, because you don't need to find new time. You have that time. What you do need to do is change the role of teacher. Instead of leading a sage on the stage, as many teachers do, you'd have a teacher leading with like 15 minutes of direct instruction and then turn the class into small group groupings, some of which are run by tutors, some of which are run by teachers. That's the easiest way to schedule. Take the existing time 
just reduce the direct instruction. A good teaching shouldn't be a teacher lecturing for 45 minutes. And this this would be in, in math class, probably then. That, that could be in math class, but I've seen it in, in early literacy too. So I'm just just recently in Orange County, building into the guided reading time where teachers now divide a class of 24 into six groups of four or eight groups of three, take half of those kids for tutoring, but let the teacher have a smaller number of kids. We did an RCT on that in Chicago with the Arnold Foundation from 2016 to 18, found the same effect size of doing that as we had gotten in our major studies of math in Chicago from 2013 to 15 that showed two and a half years of extra learning and half the black-white opportunity gap closed in one year. We closed half the black-white opportunity gap in early literacy by simply taking guided reading time, make the conditions for the teacher better, fewer kids to, to work in small groups with, and having half the kids each day get tutoring, and the next day they would switch. So that every kid got tutoring, every kid got the teacher's time, and it works. And And tutors who are online, but live and during the class. Does that work okay? Can you make that work? Yeah, I, I spoke about this at the ASU conference in San Diego last year, and I'm seeing some of it now in districts, which is, yeah. So again, let's take the high school algebra one model. It's it's one we're most familiar with, but it can work across the, uh, the grades and subjects. Teacher delivers, tutors are listening into the lesson. This is the beauty of it. So, in, so then the teacher does 15 minutes, then the teacher stops the instruction, and the tutors do their personalization in, say, groups of four. The beauty of that, it's so connected to what the teacher just did. The kid's getting tutoring in real time as opposed to the next day or two days later, which has been our traditional model. And the tutors are really connected to the, to the lesson, the curriculum, the pedagogy the teacher wants to use, the methodology of instruction. That, too, will encourage some of those tutors to want to become a teacher. Because one of the great virtues of tutoring not only is it great for teachers because it, it reduces the heterogeneity of class by catching kids at the bottom up, not only is it good for kids because it gets them to be taught at the right level where they are, but it's a talent pipeline to schools. And I think if you have teachers in the room, whether in uh, tutors in the room, whether on live online or in person, we're going to get a pipeline of talent that the schools need even more than some of these other, other reasons for tutoring. They need a pipeline of talent. David, what, what's on your mind? I mean, this all sounds too good to be true almost, but... Uh... What do, you, what do you think, David? I, I'm counting on you to be Mr. Cynical Skeptical here. Uh, unfortunately, Mike, I like it. <laughs> um, All right. Like, no, no. Listen, I like several things about it. One, um, it was specific. It focused on the things that I think need to be focused on as opposed to just tutoring. And as you were talking, Alan, what I particularly was was getting right was that you know if this is done well you are outsourcing a very specific task that need that is high impact and needs to be done well because i i gotta be honest a lot of the time when i hear the word tutoring or when people talk about it i'm like what exactly is the distinction between tutoring and a smaller class size or just another teaching assistant right and you know, I mean, it's just more attention, more time, more, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I think you can you feel free to correct me or clarify. But I think what you're saying is we have some very particular tasks um, that need to be accomplished. And um, if we have a sort of supply of people who have been trained specifically for those tasks, rather than helping teachers in every classroom all day with everything from discipline to grading, yada, 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 um, we will be more successful and we'll get more out of it. In other words, it's kind of a step along the road towards um, disaggregating the job of teaching 
And it's it's and it's a piece of the teaching job that we can pull out and help teachers with. Is that a fair summary of the case you're making? Yeah, yeah. You know, in, in in the phrase of the of our times, yeah, hundred percent. Um, which I kind of like as a math pun too, because we're a big math company. So yeah, absolutely right. It's and by the way, the the furtherance of that statement is that the kind of people you need to do that task are not the kind of people who have to be fully trained teachers. The college undergraduates become the best single labor force. I talked about Title I being the best single sustainable public funding source, but college undergraduates become the best single labor force to do those tasks that you talk about. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, that they're not trained as teachers, but you don't need to be trained as a teacher to be a tutor. In fact, I've seen teachers who are hired to be tutors in districts, and sometimes that doesn't work well. Because a teacher is used to talking to a group of 24, 30 kids, and not letting the kids productively struggle, which is what tutors actually take a lot of time to do. So good labor force there. They don't have to be as highly skilled as teachers. And second, there's a federal funding stream for them, federal work-study dollars. So college kids, some subset get financial aid of their financial aid package. Some get work-study, which means they need to earn money in a job. Now the government has said, look, one of the highest priority jobs for college students is tutoring in schools. And so the colleges will subsidize 50 to 100% of the wage that the school might have paid to the tutor using this federal funding stream that's been around for 30, 40 years. So again, the, the uh, undergraduate uh, tutor pipeline is logical here to do the tasks, the specific tasks that tutoring is required to do. And, and giving a shout out to the Biden administration, which I frankly don't do very often, uh, but they recently came out with a new policy that, it, tell me if this sounds right, Alan, I think what they're saying is you have more time to spend down your ESSER dollars if you spend it on things that we know work. And, and at the top of the list is this kind of high impact, high dosage tutoring. Yeah, and it makes sense, but I, I want to take a little riff off here. So this tutoring has got bipartisan support. Yeah, this administration is doing some of the works with, you know, after, since COVID in, in pushing the evidence uh, lead. But we've got Republican co-sponsors in every tutoring bill, both for funding and for and for um, authorizing language, because I think the Republicans see that there's a return on investment of tutoring that can actually be very specifically measured. And I think they like the um, uh, the accountability that that comes with hiring a vendor or following actual evidence, as opposed to what people think might work. Let's try something that's been proven to work. So I think this the conservative skeptics of public education, I think, are on board here, too, which gives us a pretty unique opportunity to really continue tutoring after COVID and see it not just as a student accelerator, but as a part of the design of what effective schools should be in the future. All right. Alan Safran, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Hope you'll come back uh, sometime soon. And tell us how it's going out there. I'm available any day between nine and noon. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, David. All right. Thank you. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Adam, welcome back to the show. Great to be back. You know, I am tempted to talk about the weather, uh, and yet it keeps changing here in Washington, D.C. so quickly that by the time this airs, it'll be completely irrelevant. But I will say that at this moment, uh, it is 70 degrees and balmy. I mean, humid. I mean, like a like it feels when you wake up on a balmy August morning in Washington, D.C. It's crazy. Sounds nice after, after what you all were having. A week or two ago, huh? Well, uh, depends what your preference is. Look, in the wintertime, I like snow. I like cold weather. I like skiing. So by a week or two ago, you mean like 48 hours ago, Adam? <laughs> like, right. And maybe yeah. 48 hours from now. So there you go. All right. But this is not the weather channel. This is the Education Gadfly Show. What you got for us on the research front? 
Yeah, well, today on the Research Minute, we have a new working paper from researchers at the University of Maryland, including our good friend, Professor Jing Liu, that attempts to measure the impact of expanding computer science courses in high schools on students' choices of college majors and even how much money they make once they enter the workforce. They use data from Maryland, which expanded access to computer science over the past decade to estimate whether having computer science in a school influences students' academic and career trajectories. They report that from 2013 to 2020, the share of high schools that offered computer science went from about 80% to almost 100%, while the share of high schools offering what they deem to be high-quality computer science, which is what we're going to talk about for most of the rest of the research minute here, That went from about 60% to over 90% of high schools. For the record, their definition of high quality is kind of vague. At the same time, we see the rates of students taking computer science courses increasing as well. In 2010, less than 5% of Maryland students were taking a high-quality computer science course, but by 2017, that number was north of 20%. Now, their research design looks before and after computer science is introduced into a given high school, and they find, of course, that more students are taking those classes after the classes are offered. That means that the sample in Maryland that is driving the results is disproportionately lower income and students of color, since those students were much less likely to have computer science in their schools in the early part of the study period. But then they also look at those students whose schools just got these computer science classes and what happens to the students after high school. What they find is that after those classes are offered, other student outcomes shifted as well particularly with regard to college majors. Students are much more likely to enroll in a computer science major and to persist in it after their high school starts offering those classes. Perhaps not surprisingly, those new computer science majors seem to be coming at the expense of other STEM fields, since those other STEM majors saw a slight reduction in enrollment after computer science was offered in the students' high schools. So you might think if they were going to be engineers anyway, and now they're shifting to computer science, that this is all going to kind of wash out when these students arrive in the labor market. But that doesn't seem to be the case. In fact, they find a few small effects on the likelihood of employment and on earnings at age 24. Interestingly, those positive effects are concentrated among female students, lower income students, and black students. Now, this part of the paper where they try to connect this trajectory was a little bit muddled in a couple of different ways. But one thing uh, was that the effects on initial majors, when you look at student subgroups, did not always align with the effects on graduating with a computer science degree or on effects in the workforce. For example, I told you that the workforce effects were concentrated in women. But the effects on college major and graduating with a degree in computer science are actually stronger in men. So I think that maybe what is happening is that there are other effects of computer science that the researchers couldn't capture. And maybe some of these uh, students are getting a benefit from computer science that is helping in the workforce, but is not always a result of enrolling in a computer science degree. I think that's very plausible, but it still kind of raises some questions about the theory of action here. The authors say, and I'll end with this, that their findings, and I quote, support the often claimed benefits, for example, expanding digital skills training, boosting computer science degree receipt, and increasing the supply of computer science workers, of expanding computer science uh, coursework in K-12 schools. 
And I think that's basically right. All right. Look at this. Uh, another good news story. We're just a good news show today. Now, to be clear, Adam, the point of these policies is to offer the class, right? This is not to actually require everybody to take it. That's correct. And like I said, it was when they were looking at the high quality computer science classes at the beginning of the study period, less than 5% of Maryland students were taking one of those high quality classes. At the end of the study period, it's more than 20%, which is a big increase, but it's nowhere near universal. Yeah. No, I, I, it's just, and I guess it's confusing because I thought I saw the title of the paper was something like computer science for all. So that's a little misleading. It is. They, well, it's that it's being offered for all. And I, I yeah, they actually grapple with that a little bit in the conclusions to their paper and talk about whether we need more to kind of mandate this stuff or just offering it is enough. Yeah. Well, especially because, you know, there, there's a campaign out there from code.org to try to mandate that everybody take coding. Right. Which, you know, at first you're like, oh, well, sure. Why not? Well, the reason why not is because we keep mandating all kinds of other things too. a whole year of health and we financial literacy and four years of math and three years of English. And there's just not time for everything, especially if you want to do a serious career tech. David, what's on your mind? I disagree. I, I, I haven't done the math, but there's got to be time for computer science. Come on now. I mean, I'm looking at the future and you're telling me that computer like science is not an essential skill from now until like the 29th century. I mean, it, there, we need to add another year of high school or something. I don't know. I, I, I just fundamentally disagree. I mean, Adam has just given us pretty good, compelling evidence, right? That computer science Frankly, I mean, it's reminiscent of the kind of evidence I feel like I've seen on math where it's like, well, nobody really likes it, but almost perhaps because nobody really likes it when they're forced to do it years later, right? They actually have some hard skills that employers care about, right? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, you're going to tell me that that we can't squeeze one computer science course into four years of high school. What are you going to take out? That's all I'd say is what, what are you going to take out? And, and for example, all right, a lot of people want there to be some kind of statistics class, right? Data science or, you know, there, there's an AP stat class, right? I mean, are, we really have to make kids take computer science instead of stat. What about kids who want to say go into social sciences? Well, I tend to think that high school is too late to start having these conversations. I think some of this stuff should be happening in middle schools. I just visited a middle, middle school a couple of weeks ago where like kids are taking algebra and some of them are even taking pre-calculus. There's a lot of wasted time in middle school. And you know how they get them on track for that? They have the middle school math teachers go teach an after school program in the elementary school because, frankly, a lot of elementary school teachers aren't getting students to where they need to be to be able to do rigorous stuff in middle school. So the pipeline's got to start a whole lot earlier than talking about this in high school. But I totally agree with David that there's got to be space for this, that they get introduced to this at some point, whether it's in combination with math, which might be a good way to go and do something like data science. That's something that some rural districts around the country have done because they maybe their state imposed one of these coding requirements, but they didn't have a teacher who could do it. So they said, OK, well, we're going to do a math course in conjunction with computer science. Well, that's how actual computer scientists and mathematicians do their work. So I, I think that makes a lot of sense and should be something that we think about a lot more when we talk about these pathways. Mike, I will happily kill a unit of English or foreign language or even social studies if it means computer science and statistics. Look, I'm speaking with someone who did not take a computer science course in high school or in college and then found himself in the labor market and found himself going back to graduate school to learn things that, frankly, it's insane. I wasn't exposed to in the first 20 years of my education. Right. I mean, it, 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 I don't know. It's 
it is there are there are trade-offs, right? But we do English from kindergarten all the way through eighth grade, and then we keep doing it in high school, and we speak it all the time. And I love Shakespeare. I love I love all that. We need those things, right? Same thing with social studies, right? Perhaps if we covered U.S. history at some point in the first nine grades, we could find room for a semester of social of of computer science in high school. I don't know. I mean, keep saying high school is broken. Maybe the way to fix it is to do something that actually matters in the workplace. All right. Very compelling. I like it. Yeah. Let, hey, let's kill foreign language. I mean, pretty soon, you know, Amen. we're going to be able to have instantaneous translation on every phone in America, you know, in, in the world anyway. So, yeah. I mean, I feel bad for picking on them, but at some point you have to get specific. Right. And we're not running for like, you know, chair of the foreign language department or any of these other things. Like, you have to name something, right? And and so, you know, there it is. It's like Latin and Greek departments in, in universities. At some point, you have to reconsider, you know, the reasons why this requirement was put in place in the first place. And you're right. We're going to have universal translators inside the decade. I mean, we basically already do. Not the reason to kill foreign language. The reason is because no one actually learns anything in high school foreign language. We should stop failing at teaching foreign language and start failing at teaching computer science instead. Yes. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Okay, guys, we got to stop there. Adam, thank you. Really interesting stuff. My pleasure, guys. All the time we've got for this week. And so until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.